Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Now that I have new floors, I've been busy painting doors. <laughs> Everything is looking so much better, even with just a coat of primer, but I'll be glad to be finished. It's cutting into my podcast writing time. Today, we have another play by Euripides, Heraclite or The Children of Heracles. We don't have a date for this play. Um, the best guess is somewhere around 430 BCE, give or take a few years on either end. And I'm guessing you've never heard of it. It's not surprising. It's not among Euripides' popular works. And as we go through the summary, I think you'll see why. It is, simply put, not his best work. And that's probably why it's one of the few plays by Euripides that I had to seek out in ebook form. Um, there is a collection of all 19 of his tragedies available for free, so that's what I'll be using for this episode. And if you've been taking notes, you may recall that I said 20 of his plays have survived. Um, that 20th play is a satyr play, not a tragedy, so that's not included in this particular collection. Um, this translation is E.P. Coleridge. It was originally published in 1910, so not very new, but um, obviously it wouldn't be available for free online if it were. <laughs> um, want translators to get paid. Uh, the play is set at the Temple of Zeus in Marathon, and you should already have an idea of where Marathon is. Um, like maybe it's about, oh, I don't know, 25 miles from Athens. Um, so the play isn't set in Athens, but it's very close to Athens. Uh, it's a marathon's distance away. Um, and the play is about what happens to the children of Heracles after that hero's death, which we saw in Sophocles' Women of Trachis. Um, the cast consists of a lot of people with some sort of relationship to Heracles. There is his old friend Iolus, his mother Alcmene, and his daughter Macaria. Um, there's a servant of Hylus, who you may recall is the son of Heracles, who plays a key role in Women of Trachis. Um, and there's King Eurystheus, Heracles' cousin, who sent Heracles on the 12 labors that made him famous. Um, also, Eurystheus's herald, Caprius. The only other named characters are Demophon, the king of Athens, and his brother, Achimus, who has a name but no lines. Uh, the rest of the titular children of Heracles are non-speaking roles, and our homogenous chorus is made up of the old men of Athens, although I'm sure a modern production could just be a group of Athenians. There's no particular reason it has to be gendered. The prologue does a pretty good job filling in what has happened since the death of Heracles, so we'll take a break here before going over the plot. When the play begins, we find Iolus and the children of Heracles on the steps of the Temple of Zeus. Iolus speaks the prologue. He speaks of his friendship with Heracles and how uh, that friend now lives in the heavens. And that is why Iolus has taken the children under his wing, even though he himself um, is also under threat. You see, King Eurystheus isn't content with just Heracles being dead. He wants to wipe out his rival's entire line. Iolus, Alcmene, and the children have roamed in exile from one city to the next. Iolus has taken charge of the boys and Alcmene, the girls. Um, Hylus and the second oldest of Heracles' sons have gone ahead in hopes of finding a place where the family can finally settle in peace. 
Iolus's speech is cut short when he sees Caprius in the distance. He calls to the children to hold on to him because he knows this won't be good. Caprius enters. He tells Iolus to give up. The stones have been collected and are waiting for him to be brought back to Argos, which is lovely. Uh, the two men argue and fight, and Caprius gets his hands on the children. Iolus calls for help, and before Caprius is able to exit, the chorus enters. Either they were already near, or, well, they just ran a marathon from Athens. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'll stop making marathon jokes. The chorus leader asks what's going on, and Iolus gives his side of the story. The chorus has, of course, heard of Heracles and asks if the children are seeking an audience with the state of Athens. Iolus thinks this sounds like a great idea. Caprius argues, but the chorus tells him tough cookies. They won't let him proceed with this injustice. Caprius could have started by speaking with the proper authorities, but now it's too late. Caprius scoffs. The king can't be that important here. The chorus leader rolls his eyes and responds, Duh, he's only Demophon, the son of Theseus. You know, Theseus? Caprius grumbles, but agrees that maybe it would be a good idea to talk to the king. Um, Demophon and Achimus and their attendants enter. The chorus explains what's going on. Demophon lays out the biggest insult a Greek could give. Well, except maybe for your mother was from Thrace, um, which is kind of an SOB type insult in ancient Greece. Um, anyway, he says that Caprius may dress like a Greek, but his behavior shows that he's clearly a barbarian. And you should remember how the Greeks felt about those barbarians. Caprius argues that he is Greek and gives a lengthy monologue about how he works for King Eurystheus of Argos, and he's been ordered to bring these people home. And if Demophon intervenes, well, that means war. But if Demophon lets Caprius do what he wants to do, an allyship between the two cities will be sealed. Before Demophon can make a decision, the chorus reminds him that both sides must be heard. Ilus then gives his own lengthy monologue, including quantities of flattery about how great Athens is and how great Theseus was and how he remembers Theseus from back in the day. Demophon announces that he will protect Ilus and the Heraclite. He tells Caprius to go home and tell Eurystheus to put that in his pipe and smoke it. These refugees are protected by the city and laws of Athens. If Eurystheus has grievances against them, he must go through the Athenian justice system. Caprius tries to argue that right is on his side, but Demophon says that no one has the right to drag suppliants away from the altar, and that no matter who does it, the fault will lie on Demophon's shoulders for allowing it to happen. Caprius suggests that Demophon banish them, but Demophon refuses. They argue for a while before Caprius realizes that Demophon will not budge. Caprius exits. Iolus thanks Demophon for his kindness and tells the children that they have come to a good place. Demophon says, aw, shucks, thanks, and then leaves to go assemble an army, because they all know that Caprius and Eurystheus aren't going to let this matter be. The chorus sings about how they love peace, but not so much that they won't defend their city. Demophon enters and announces that Eurystheus and his army have arrived. Hand to Zeus, he saw them himself. But there's a little snag before the Athenians can go and fight. He's checked with all of the oracles, and they all say that Persephone is requiring a sacrifice. A very specific sacrifice. A maiden with a noble father. 
But where's he going to find one of these? I mean, sure, he's got daughters, but he's not going to sacrifice any of them. Who do you think he is, Agamemnon? Okay, he doesn't mention Agamemnon, but if the shoe fits... Eilis was super helpful and wails about how they just can't cut a break. The only solution he can think of is to turn himself over to Eurystheus. He's old, and Eurystheus hates him because he helped Heracles on his labors. Demophon commends him for the offer, but refuses to allow him to go through with it. It's more important to stand up to bullies like Eurystheus instead of appeasing them. Besides, Eurystheus won't be satisfied until the Heraclidae are dead, too. We'll see if I have more trouble pronouncing Eurystheus. He has too many in his name. (laughs) Makaria enters from the temple. She's heard the discussion, and she knows that it's not a woman's place to interfere when men are speaking, but she can't listen to her brothers be threatened anymore. Eilis tells her no, they should draw lots to pick whatever maiden's going to be sacrificed, but she insists. If someone has to die to keep her family safe, it should be her. Eilis isn't happy about this development, but the chorus does their best to reassure him that she is doing a good and noble thing. Macaria says farewell to her family, and she and Demophon exit. Hillis's servant enters. He's come with good news for Alcmene. Eilis calls for her. She enters and asks what all the shouting is about. He tells her that Hillis is on his way. Alcmene rolls her eyes. So what? He's not here, is he? It would have been better to just wait until he was actually here to call for her. The servant explains that Hillis has brought an army and lots of allies. Eilis perks up at this news. He asks for details. Lots of details. And then he says that he must go and join the army. The servant scoffs at the thought of this old man trying to smite the enemy. But Eilis insists and says that... Um, there are captured arms in the temple, and he can use those. He doesn't, you know, he's not currently armed, but he can use what's in the temple. Um, the servant humors him and exits to go and, and fetch some of these armaments. Alcmene and Eilis argue. She says that he's abandoning the Heraclidae by doing this, and he insists that it's the only way to protect them. The servant enters with arms for Eilis and helps him suit up. And despite Alcmene's protestations, he and the servant exit together. The chorus sings a song about war and peace, uh, but it's not nearly as long as when Tolstoy tackles that topic. And the servant returns with news. Hillis has won the day, and Eilis was particularly glorious for his part. You see, Hillis challenged Eurystheus to single combat, but that old coward wouldn't do it. And it was Eilis who captured the Argive king. The servant provides all of the details. Alcmene rejoices at this news. The only thing she doesn't understand is why Eilis doesn't just kill Eurystheus. Oh, we saved him for you, the servant explains, and then exits. The chorus sings a song of joy. A messenger enters, followed by Eurystheus, and the men who have him under guard. Alcmene tells the king that how she's looking forward to killing him. The messenger argues with her that this is not how things are done in Athens. Athenians don't just kill prisoners of war, no matter how much they hate them. Alcmene says that as much as she loves Athens, she hates Eurystheus more. Eurystheus speaks up. He tells her that it was because of Hera that he treated Heracles and the Heraclite thus. He was happy to die in war, and he's happy to die now, because whoever chooses to kill him in this state will bring a curse on their heads. 
Alcmini suggests that she kill Eurystheus and then give his body to his friends. She insists that this way he'll die, but they won't break the law. Eurystheus repeats that he has no intention of pleading for his life. And in that case, Alcmini responds, let's just get on with it, and they exit. The chorus gives a final word of agreement, and the play ends. Something that we'll see in a lot of Euripides' plays is a focus on people who are usually sidelined. This play is called the Heraclidae, or the Children of Heracles. Um, We hear the voice of one of them. We don't even see another. But it's important to remember that the youngest sons of Heracles are on stage pretty much the entire time. So even though they have no lines, they have a presence. Um, And so I I think this play is probably more powerful when presented with some sort of visual component than in an audio-only format because we have these vital, the titular characters are non-speaking roles. So so if all we hear are the lines or you just hear me describing what happens in those lines, we miss that that visual reminder of what's at stake. so so yeah I, I but still I mean let's face it it is <laughs> it is not Euripides's best work this is no Medea um, there are still of course a few things that merit discussion starting with the two women that we see Alcmene and Macaria and they are very different in a lot of ways um, I mean Alcmene is Heracles's mother so she's Macaria's grandmother she's not exactly young by this point in the story and I mean, she might be fun to play, um, given that she clearly has no um, Fs left to give. If Carrie Fisher were still alive, I'm pretty sure she'd do great justice to that role. Cher. (laughs) Cher might be a good person to play or two. I could could see that. Um, But I really, really want to talk about Macaria. Um, That's her name in the translation I'm working from. But in other translations, she has no name. No one calls her Macaria. She's never addressed by name in this play. Um, So that's just how she's designated in the script. Um, So if you're reading a different translation than the E.P. Coleridge, she might just be listed as a maiden or something along those lines, a young woman. Um, Probably not woman because that, that maiden is important. It's important that she's a virgin sacrifice, not, not a married woman sacrifice, right? Um, We know that she's a daughter of Heracles, or at least kin to him in some manner, um, which is why she offers herself up as the sacrifice. Uh, But what happens to her? She and Demophon exit, and we never see either of them again. Obviously, this is in part because we only have three actors in the play. There are only three people delivering lines. But but when we look at it from a story standpoint, it's unclear um, what's happened after, after they exit. Um, are the Athenians part of the the army assembled by Hillus? And um, so is she actually sacrificed? If she is, is she sacrificed unnecessarily? Um, is she sacrificed and then the Athenian army isn't needed? Is the war won before the sacrifice can take place so she actually survives? And and just on the that subject of, of her willingness, why is she so ready and willing to die? 
Well, Euripides frequently does such a good job looking at motivation and the psychology of his characters. Macaria, or the maiden, is flat. And frankly, so is Elkmini. Most of the characters in this play are missing the dimension that is in most of Euripides' surviving works. The other character I do want to talk about is Demophon. A little bit of Athenian propaganda, or at least morale boosting there, isn't he? Um, he refuses to appease Eurystheus. And yes, I choose that word specifically. Um, Demophon's speech about Eurystheus reminds me a little bit of the lead up to World War II, except, of course, in the 20th century, um, bully leaders were appeased and nine million people were killed, um, plus those on the battlefield. But Demophon shows all of what is great about Athens. He gives three reasons that he will protect the Heraclite. They are currently protected by Zeus, and he won't do anything to anger the gods. Through his father, Theseus, he has a kinship with the family of Heracles. And he refuses to set the precedent of tearing suppliants away from the author. From, from the altar, pardon me. He is a model Athenian. So it's like... There's the whole religious thing and kinship thing, but it's really important that he not do something that that then will show the world that, oh, Athens doesn't protect people. It's like, no, it's more important to, to set a precedent that Athens protects those who are helpless. Um, oh, and there is one small thing that I do want to make a note of. We joke about all the exciting bits in Greek tragedy happening off stage, but that, I mean, that's not really true. Um, it's death that usually occurs off stage. Violence, no problem. That happens all the time. And we see that in this play in the, the absolute fisticuffs that happen between Ilus and Copreus at the beginning of the play. Um, knock down, drag out, literally <laughs> fight um, at the beginning. So it, there's violence. It's, it's just not that people don't usually die on stage. That's very rare. So what are your thoughts about the Heraclitium? Good? Bad? Meh? We can talk about all of this and more over on the blog. The link, as always, is in the show notes. On Wednesday, we will finish reading the Iliad. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.